Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Yeah, so today on the Indigo Podcast, we're talking with Kristen Sabo. That's right. And we're going to be talking about a bunch of things because she's a really cool person. But we're going to be talking in particular about her areas of focus and her work with the military veteran community. Uh, We're going to be talking about the use of science for making policy more generally. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the current state and potential future for military veteran employment in the United States. So uh, just so you all know that we do have Kristen Sabo on the podcast. Say hi, Kristen. Hello. All right. So glad to have you. And now let me properly introduce you. So Kristen leads employee listening, research, and talent strategy at the Boeing Company. She is responsible for authoring and leading Boeing's Enterprise Veterans and Military Spouses Strategy. She also sits on several national-level advisory councils related to veteran employment. Prior to Boeing, Kristen served in the U.S. Army. As an Army research psychologist, she conducted psychological and organizational research. And in that role, she had the opportunity to advise people across the entire spectrum, from junior personnel to top generals. She is the chair of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology's Military and Veterans Initiatives Task Force. And she was a member of the 2019 class of the George W. Bush Presidential Center's Stand to Veteran Leadership Program. Kristen completed both master's and doctoral degrees in industrial and organizational psychology at the University of South Florida. So here's a formal welcome to the Indigo podcast, Kristen. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. Yes, we're, yes. And, hey, Ben, <laughs> we finally got an army person on here, you That's... Navy jack wagon. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. Of course, right before we started recording, we were just discussing how Kristen married somebody in the Navy. So obviously she uh, wisened up at some point. Oh my as well, gosh. So. Well, my that... dad's Air Force. So I, oh, she I is feel just... like my son is destined to be in the Marines. Um, Ad... So I think I need to start taking the crayons away from him now. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So uh, you got like the Joint Chiefs of Staff going on right there Tr- in your house. We're That's trying awesome. really hard. I don't think it's going to work out, but. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So. I think maybe we'll just start, Kristen. You know, you you have an interesting background. Uh, I'm just curious you, if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit about, you know, how did you get to where you are um, and, and some of your focus areas? That'd be awesome. Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I um, always chuckle and try to figure out even how to answer. Um, how did I get to where I was? I would say over preparation, a lot of amazing people in my life that set me up for success and saw things in me that. I perhaps recognized, but didn't know what to do with. So that's that's the high level answer. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it was learning to divorce my own wants and needs and focus from actually the the thoughts of other people in terms of expectations, right? So mm. starting to kind of follow my own true path and realizing that there was intent with that and purpose. Um, and and realizing that by following my own path with focus, it actually was going to allow me to accelerate faster in all the other ways and all the other things that people were saying that I happened to be good at, but perhaps weren't at the core of everything I wanted to do. And so um, I did my PhD. I actually, I got offered a tenure track position in a business school, which is kind of every young PhD's dream 
of like, I, I got the offer in a business school too, which sometimes is harder to crack into. And I just had this sinking feeling in my stomach that this wasn't right. Mm. Um, and I realized I was going to take the position for a lot of reasons that weren't core to the academic life. Um, and I had been toying with this idea of doing mil more military research. I'd been doing it throughout grad school. Um, I had done an internship, a fellowship at RAND um, to kind of understand the think tank world. I had, I had done other consulting. Um, and it was just this moment of getting what was supposed to be my dream job offer and realizing it wasn't my dream. Wow. And it um, the two weeks that followed were very intense. I got on the phone with every single person I could, both from those that I worked with in the military on different research, um, people who had mentored me through the year to include some of my undergraduate mentors, um, my academic mentors. I, I was just on the phone nonstop trying to figure out, like, what in the world am I doing? And what came out of that was I'm going to join the Army. That, which is very normal of, and natural, right? That's the decision everyone expected me to make. Um, that's where lost people go. <laughs> well, they gave uh, me only you, only you didn't get your 18-year-old girlfriend pregnant or something like that. Not that I know of. You know, um, and that's a funny, that's a funny story. So being female in the military and also joining after I'd done a PhD meant I was a little bit older than I would say like the people in their first year in the military and I direct commission to a captain. So I kind of skipped those first four to six years of experience as an officer. But the first question I oftentimes would be get was like, ma'am, do you have any children? Hmm. And I, that, that's fine. Like, it's fine. It's just, I, I didn't yet. I wasn't, you know, I, I was in a relationship. We were about to get married, but like, I didn't have kids yet. And apparently that was against like the norm in a lot of people's minds. And so I would respond with, um, not that I know of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I, a fun, I mean, that's a funny response from a, from a guy, but it's even funnier from, from a woman. Exactly. So. Cause it, yeah. it's just such a masculine culture that you hear guys making that joke. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to own it because awesome. I'm a female in the military and this is what comes with it. So, um, let's run with it. That's, but, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so you joined the army and, uh, you know, went into the, the research psychology field within the army. Um, and, uh, you know, actually is, is interesting when we were talking in prepara preparation for this episode, we realized that, uh, all three of us were in Afghanistan at the same time for a while. So that's kind of cool. Um, but, uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like. Um, what kinds of things did you actually do in the army as a research psychologist? Yeah. So I, I'm a very strategic thinker. I do everything with a plan and an intent and probably a contingency plan or two as to what things are going towards. So I joined the army because it was going to put me at the decision-making table day one when it came to the integration of research with policy and strategy, which is not an easy world to crack into when you think about the different circles and the experiences that are required to do that. So being trained as a researcher, it's a PhD, they definitely don't train you on policy and strategy. Um, conversely, the policy and strategy world, they rely on the experts to advise them, but they themselves tend to not have that expertise. So in the Army, I got to do just that. It was, I mean, incredible experiences that have set me up for success in just so many ways. I, and I'm i still beginning, I'm, I'm still understanding all the ways that set me up for success, to be honest. So my first assignment was at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which is the premier research institute for Army and Navy, actually. It's a joint facility um, in terms of psychological research. And so just really great mentorship was able to be had there. 
Um, and really understanding fundamentally about how you do large scale program implementation and training implementation and also do the research and program assessment of it um, to, to know if it works. And if it doesn't work, like, guess what, guys? Stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, don't keep doing it. Wait a minute. I thought the thing in the army was if it doesn't work, let's that's the plan more, we got to do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we were swimming upstream at times. Um, <laughs> but the intent was that we everything was supposed to be based in research. And when it comes to the psychological health and well-being of service members and their families, it's even more critical. That's a life or death moment. Um, quite literally. And so unlike in the civilian sector where like, oh, whoops, we wasted some money in the Department of Defense for any service, it's like, oh, whoops, we lost a life. Like that is unacceptable. And so that is why the prioritization of research and science, I think, is felt so differently um, within the Beltway, honestly, when it comes to the Department of Defense and any national security issue, but especially within each service in terms of their the researchers that they employ and Frankly, there's some of the best in the world. Like it's, it was incredible the people I met that were in uniform and also the civilians I got to work with. So I was at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Um, it's an extension of Fort Detrick. So my husband used to joke with me that I was um, Julia Stiles in the Born Identity, right? <laughs> of giving like <laughs> giving the blue pill, right? And I was like, oh, I can't talk about it, but no, that's not me. Um, so I I did that and that's where I deployed on behalf of the Surgeon General and Chief of Staff of the Army to go to Afghanistan the mental health advisory team is what it's called Um, we do them every few years to to gauge what's going on in the war zone right Um, things get weird like people are weird under stress and so we need to figure that out and help them not be as weird and I, I say weird because there's no good or bad to it it's just human physiology and biology as to how we react to threats in our environment and how we find ways to overcome them. Um, a lot of that in the military, because it's a leadership and ethics culture, relies on leadership and ethics. And so that was inherently always part of what we're studying. And I just so happen to have expertise in leadership and well-being and motivation, which all boils down to really what today we call performance psychology. But I mean, even a few years ago, like was not yet a, a term we used. It was this, you know, other other topics coming from other disciplines. So just really awesome to be able to like physically do boots on the ground and be studying this stuff. And, um, you know, in brief, all the way up through the entire chain of command in the military on the findings, um, the findings do go to Congress, right? It's It's a big deal when we do these studies and especially when we actually deploy to do the research and they have very real implications. So as a result of that one, within a week, General Milley, who, as you know, is now the Joint Chief of Staff, had enacted entire changes to um, sleep habits, like what was expected for sleep in Afghanistan when I was there. It was it was quite quick on um, how quickly we had to move. You got sleep in Afghanistan? Um, well, no, I don't I remember did not. that part. <laughs> I, I, I did not get much sleep, but I hear that some people did. Um, but, but really basic stuff, like if you're on, if if the roommates are on different shifts, like create a room with people all on the same shift so that door isn't constantly opening and closing, or simply make sure the door is not loud when it closes, right? It doesn't have that heavy bang that you both will recall from the large, thick metal doors. Yeah. Whap! Yeah, no one will forget that one, how loud it is. Like, make sure maybe it's like a soft close so it doesn't wake up everyone in the room. Like, really, really tiny mechanics, like those micro behaviors that can have have significant change. So 
just awesome opportunity to be able to feel like you have an impact immediately like that. And then I, um, I handed up to the Pentagon and that was really what I wanted to do the whole time. It was, it was the job I had been eyeing of why I joined was to be in charge of the science and research integration for the ready and resilient effort, which included topics of resilient suicide and substance abuse. So not things to be taken lightly, um, but just phenomenal impact and really the, the proliferation, I would say, of resilience across industry right now, that topic, um, whether it be through training or just like how to be a resilient organization or, you know, right now, due to a pandemic, everyone's talking about how to be more resilient in crisis. That all came about because of the Army's funding of um, their resilience program starting in about 2008. And so I was involved in all of that research. And, and then I became in charge of the Army's program for that research and made sure everything that came out of that office for the Army was founded in science and research, um, whether you know informed or formally based in, I was there to make sure it all was consistent. Um, to include every time you know the chief of staff went to Congress to testify and they had questions on those topics, I had to be one of the people to check off the box of like, yes, I approve that this, like every single word is accurate because guess what? If you say one thing wrong, you're going to get called out for it. Um, so just a really cool experience in terms of being in the middle of the world of policy. I'm at a national and honestly international level, right? So we work with NATO partners, really, really cool research actually goes on. Um, Israel does some really interesting work on combat stress um, that's been able to be adapted by other NATO nations too. And so just really cool, cool experiences that really set me up for success in terms of understanding how to bring research to bear at a national and international level, which is kind of a, a niche world um, in terms of translation of findings. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So you left active duty a couple years ago and then uh, went over to Boeing, right? I did. So yeah. um, I was I was debating what I wanted to do. I, I was actually in a role at the Pentagon that was for a couple ranks above my own rank. So I was this little captain running around at the Pentagon informing people that they had to listen to me. And for, you know, listeners who don't understand the rank structure, I was supposed to be getting coffee for the people getting coffee for the generals, right? Like that was the <laughs> rank I was. And instead I was informing people senior to me to get my coffee. Um, and so I, I was really lucky that I had some advocates that allowed me to sit at the table. And that was a very unique situation. And over time I was able to kind of have my name known. So I, as a result, was debating actually going into a government position, um, doing effectively what I had already been doing. And Boeing came along and said, hey, we're building out this like new innovative strategy team that's going to change how we do things and we would love your expertise. And I thought, you know, that sounds kind of fun. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about getting out of active duty anyway. And what better time to try out the corporate world than now, as opposed to later when it might not fit my career trajectory. Um, so I joked with people I was going to go do my corporate internship. <laughs> so I quite literally walked down the street because it turns out Boeing's office here in um, the D.C. area is just around the corner from the Pentagon. So that was handy. Um, and I, I joined a strategy team at Boeing and I felt like it was really important. I had been a formal researcher. I had gotten to really dapple in the creation of large scale policies and strategy, but I had not been strategy first as my role. And so this was my opportunity to be strategist first, researcher second. 
um, and haven't looked back since. It's It's been an interesting experience because, of course, I entered Boeing just prior to both of the um, crashes with the Max. And so, it, you know, Boeing is a company that has had just massive and, you know, well-earned success for decades. And so those crashes really jolted the company um, into having to just fundamentally reassess the situation and think differently because they've been on a glide path for a long time and, and not necessarily in a bad way. I know there's a lot of press out there talking about like the ills of culture and things like that. But quite frankly, I mean, I think any large corporation would have been where they were at um, in terms of trying to make sense of a situation that was a shock event. So good example of correlation is not causation, right? I tend to enter into organizations just prior to crisis, it seems. Um, <laughs> which is, I guess it helps that I have expertise in like people under stress. But uh, yeah, so I, I've been at Boeing through all of this um, the last two and a half years. And it, it's been just another awesome activity where I've had some really strong advocates. Um, I showed up then as a strategist and noted that they they needed to like revamp their veterans and military spouses strategy. And I, I walked in, I found the right people and I was like, hey, uh, I'm here um, and I'd like to do this for you. And so my, um, well, at that time, a few levels above me, boss, but now my current boss said like, yeah, sure. Let me know when you'd want to meet and show me what you have. And two weeks later, I met with literally the entire strategic plan before him for the next several years. Um, probably surprised him a little bit, but ever since I've been able to run with it. So it has been just a really fun opportunity within Boeing. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, tell us a little bit more about the, uh, you know, the, the veterans and military spouses strategy. What are you trying to do at Boeing and how's it going? Yeah. So one, it's fun for me as an industrial organizational psychologist, cause I get to employ all of our best practices and actually like kind of play with them. So what we want to do is create meaningful work experiences for our veterans and our military spouses and their family members, and that includes caregivers, um, and, and make sure that they are able to show up in the job and be their best selves, despite and also because of the different culture that they've come from in their past. So unlike other, say, protected classes that are legally protected, veterans are the only group of that that have chosen to become that protected class. And so in that way, they're a bit different from other, you know, diversity or targeted groups or populations um, in the workplace. And so it's really important that companies that want to create and foster that environment, in particular for military veterans, focus their efforts strategically on how they create that environment for them. Um, and, and so our strategy aims to focus on the meaningful workplace, focus on that employee experience. And not just focus on the hiring aspect of it, right? So it's really critical we get someone in the door. That's fantastic. But it turns out it's not good for anyone if someone doesn't stay. Because that's a lot of money for the company. It's a lot of time and effort for all parties. And frankly, for a transitioning veteran, that's just an unneeded experience. They're already going through a rather significant identity shift. Um, and a rather significant just shift in their feelings of where the world of work fits in their lives, right? The military is 24-7. It is your life. Like, it is your identity. Um, whether you want it to be or not, it's going to become your identity. And suddenly, that rug is just pulled out from under you, and they give you your DD-214, and they're like, see ya. <laughs> um, and a lot of that is changing, right, in terms of this notion of veteran for life. 
um, and the role that the VA plays. But it's only been in the last couple of years that there's even legislation that allows for the data from the DOD and the data from the VA to even talk to each other. So what was happening was just a dramatic firewall of information that would occur between those two worlds, such that that feeling of like kicked out the door was quite literally the case in the administrative data sets as well, which meant zero continuity of care, zero continuity of resources. Um, and as a result, employers and nonprofits really have to step up to provide that wraparound in terms of the experience and helping the veteran and also the military family members because they go through transition too. Um, and frankly, they go through it every single time they move with the service member. It's not just at the end of career, but it's every single stage of that career. And so it, it's incumbent upon companies um, that want to be serving this population. And I would argue everyone should because those coming from the military community come with some unique characteristics that we do have the beginnings of a strong foundation of research demonstrating that they are highly valuable in um, corporate settings and in entrepreneurial settings and in education settings. So um, it, it's it's just kind of like that force multiplier in military terms of why wouldn't you focus on this population? They are in high demand. They come with security clearances, which is a reason a lot of companies in, in part are seeking them. But they also come with a, a lot of soft skills that we know are the skills of the future when we look at future workforce trends. Um, soft skills are where it's at. As things become more and more automated, we need technical expertise, but like extremely crazy deep level technical expertise. And then we need people with soft skills who can manage the social environment in which we're kind of operating to manage this, you know, increase in usage of technology. And veterans come with those, right? They're used to quick action. They're used to being decisive. They're used to being agile in their thinking. They're used to team-based work. Um, they're used to working wherever they're at and making it work. And it's just, it's a totally different mindset. And, you know, when things, when, and when companies think like, oh, veterans are different, they don't get it. I think, well, that's really interesting because all the future workforce trends I know about seem to kind of fit actually how veterans think <laughs> of project-based work, right? Go towards the mission, get to the product. The product's all you care about. Like how you get there, eh, I don't care. You know, all those types of concepts um, work ethically. Like, shocker, that's important. Um, that's kind of at the core of serving. So all of these factors mean that in our military community, we actually have in so many ways an untapped pool that we can use to accelerate some of our cultural advances in corporations and not just that technical product advancement that's also equally important. Um, I love how you said soft skills. Yeah. Because when, I, you know, and I just joined the National Guard. I've been civilian, you know, for forever. I was a musician in Nashville. I have a very sensitive personality. You know, <laughs> and, and, like in the Army is not a bunch of redneck numbskulls driving big trucks, playing Call of Duty and doing shots of tequila every weekend. That I, you can find every group like the guys that get together and play chess on the weekend. Some of them might be in community theater. Like, I mean, they're stone cold killers. Don't get me wrong. They're going to play My Little Pony with their kid and go do and accomplish the mission. But this idea of like no soft skills is just so weird because a lot of the stuff in consulting with organizations, it's like, well, we just need somebody to just put a boot to the rear and get things going. And, and you're like, well, some of these army guys are going to do that really well for you. 
Others of them might just be better in a technical expert. You're going to have to go through this. Imagine that the same assessment criteria with veterans that you would. However, it's like Minecraft, you know, well, you're going to probably mine some more gold there based on the experiences. Like that's one of the things that stood out to me about your background. You know, oh, look, I went from this awesome opportunity of leadership, policy and science to this opportunity to this. If you guys want those kinds of banging opportunities, those doors open to you in the military. Ben, Ben, you have a bunch of experience meeting people all over. But let, let's dive into some of this stuff. It's like, so Boeing, right? They're, they're a top-ranked veteran employer. I mean, and there's like a bunch of these, you know, Boeing's a great example. Why are they a top-ranked veteran employer? And what are they doing well that other organizations could maybe pick up from? Well, they're a top-ranked veteran employer because Kristen works there. Well, I mean, that's the obvious answer. Like, I have a strategy the last two years, and it's it's based in, like, fundamental best practices of IO psychology. (laughs) Um, So there is actually some truth to that. In terms of our recent rankings, we have seen some increase in the last year, and it is in part because of new programs that we put in place. Um, We also, we have a really large percentage of veterans. We have about 15% of the company are veterans. Wow. uh, Which creates its own culture. Um, and also means that we have a very active employee resource group that wants to be involved. And, you know, when I when I talk to veterans as they're transitioning or I, I, I go do public speaking, whether it be a part of my employer or separately, um, you know, one of the things I talk about is just like the privilege of purpose. So many veterans think like, woe is me, you know, like who's going to help me out? And I'm like, well, let's think about that statement. like. In the military, so much was done for you. And if you joined at the age of 18, guess what? You never learned how to do some of those things. Conversely, you had the incredible privilege of leading a life that was filled with purpose in your job. And that as a core concept is quite honestly an experience. I don't actually know the numbers. I don't know if there's a solid research study on this, to be honest. So great research idea there. But I don't think the majority of people, at least in America, know what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the companies aren't being very specific and compelling in their vision and culture. Because this is the thing. So you join the army, you know, you got a contract. You're going to have a job. They'll assign you a job. And if you're a numbskull that they're going to put out after a while, well, you still got a job on your way out. Right. That's not the same civilian side. Mm -hmm. But this idea of purpose, and I really wish civilian organizations would take something from this as all three of us straddle both of those worlds is that, Oh, how can, how do I get engagement from my employees? Well, give them <laughs> some gosh darn purpose. What do, you, what do you mean? Can I buy this? Is there a consultant that can, can come install purpose in your company? No, you <laughs> numbskull. You're going to have to come up with a purpose. Like if you can't be so specific, about your purpose. Maybe for Boeing, it's making the best gosh darn airplanes in the world. Or, you know, if if you're a cookie manufacturer, bringing delight to homes worldwide or whatever it is. If you can't be passionate about that at the executive level, you can't expect that. And then you're going to start seeing these kinds of questions like, I just don't feel like people are engaged around here. You know, man, it's like kind of like they're just here for a paycheck or something. (laughs) it's it's so true um well and the topic of engagement is just a fascinating one in and of itself like the whole 
I mean, the whole concept has really taken flight the last decade. Before that, we just talked about satisfaction and commitment. So, I mean, academically, in terms of the construct itself, there's been quite a bit of controversy amongst the academics um, and the way that they, you know, debate it in journal articles, which is its own, you know, fun thing to watch. Uh, It gets quite sassy sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, this concept of like, how do I get people to care and like dive in, right? Like internalize what we do. A lot of times in companies that doesn't drive with the bottom line. And so with veterans, one thing that we do in terms of our programming is recognize that, you know, and maybe this won't be a popular thing to say, like from an institutional way, but sometimes your work isn't going to be the source of your purpose. And that's okay. Like these things are actually okay. The world is not perfect. But what you can do is find purpose in other activities that are related to it. And so what yeah, I sometimes think is, a purpose is you're suffering together. You're like right. I, I've had some bad jobs, bad missions in the military. You're like, oh, my gosh. But you kind of look to the guy to your left and the right. Right. And you're like, well, let's let's embrace the suck, as we say. Smile let's embrace the yeah. suck together. <laughs> and then you come through that. And then like later, you're like, man, I kind of miss having that really crappy job. That was the best people there. So like you can, like to your point, you can get it at home. But you can also get it. You can have the crappiest job. But if you've formed culture and have a vision and a purpose around what you're doing, right? Nobody wants to do nothing that goes nowhere for no purpose. Absolutely. You can have purpose. We have to have sewage treatment. Now, I don't know many youth that like grow up thinking, you know, I've just always imagined a career in, you know, sewage management. You know, forgive me if there's one or two of those out there globally, right? But- but we still have to do it. But you can find those existential values. And I think that's something in the military because you're assigned. Heck, you don't even get to pick the numbskulls that go with you. All right, Ben, here's 40 people. Go accomplish this mission. You're like, gee, Chris, that sounds like a good mission and everything. But did you see the knuckle draggers you gave me? <laughs> no, you don't get to say that. You got to go with the numbskulls you got. And, you know, as a numbskull. I've enjoyed the numbskulls I've met through my military <laughs> career. <laughs> That's where the best stories come from. That's why people in the military like to tell stories is because we bonded over all of the good and bad. Um, and I, I think that's part of the culture, though, is calling it out and making fun of it, right? Like, there's there's so much catharsis and humor. Yeah. So what I'd like to I'd like to kind of pivot us towards talking about this idea of veteran employment a little more broadly. So you've had these amazing experiences uh, personally at Boeing and so forth. You know, what are some of the things that we know about veterans employment? Kind of what's the state of affairs out there, um, you know, across the civilian workplace in general? Yeah. So veterans employment, the last decade has been a really interesting period for it Um, before the current, you know, war on terror, if you will, period, which has really spanned now two decades, which is quite phenomenal when you think about the people that are now deploying may not have been born when 9-11 happened. Like, yeah, that is just kind of this mind-blowing concept for so many of us who lived through 9-11 and also served knowing what we were getting into, or those who served not knowing what they were getting into because they joined just prior to 9-11 and, you know, just continuous deployments. But you know, veterans employment got really bad for a while in there um, because we increased the size of our military so quickly 
the churn, the op tempo, as we call it, right, was so intense in terms of the deployment. So, you know, historically, someone would deploy maybe once in their career, if that. You know, we've, we've had several decades where deployments weren't much of a thing. And then all of a sudden, we're looking at people who have deployed five times in five years. And the toll that takes on someone, I mean, you literally can't establish a life, right? If you're never living in one location, and Chris, to your point, like, here's your new team, have fun. Oh, here's your new team, have fun, right? Like, oh, oh, here's your new family. Um, it not is even... true. New team fatigue is a deal. Yes. It is a deal. Keep going. Yeah. And, well, and also, like, where does anything, like, where does the rest of your social world fit in? Do you even get a family? So right. all of these, you know, you're putting life on hold. You're not having life. You're having dysfunctional life. And you're dealing with the trauma and experience of war. Um, whether it's physical, psychological, spiritual, whatever it is, those things are very real for people. And so as a result, the last decade, unemployment for veterans skyrocketed, right? It was getting up to like 20%. And when we were looking at it, it wasn't just like the stereotype of the old crotchety male veteran, right? That like, argh, Walking around and is this It's like we can't let you greet people at Walmart, man. You you gotta right. be able to smile like, for this job. You gotta fake it at least. <laughs> Although now they can wear a mask with a smile on yeah, it. There so you like go. problem solved. <laughs> problem staying solved. Rangers lead the way. There yeah. You go. <laughs> um but you know, now we, we have these young veterans coming out of service, like with this like existential crisis going on of I don't know where I fit in the world. I don't think I have the skills that everyone wants because no one understands that I didn't just blow things up. Like, that's not what everyone does. And, like, I didn't learn any different. And I don't know where I fit. And I don't even know if I agreed with being deployed, but I did what I had to do. And so as a result, there was just this, like, confluence of events that occurred, you know, in the last decade that resulted in, rightfully so, national policy pushing forward. And fortunately, this is a genuinely nonpartisan issue. And so we were able to bring about like advances in the GI Bill, right? A lot of advances in terms of unemployment efforts to get veterans hired was the first goal was just hire the veteran. That, of course, then led to some second order effects of, okay, so we got all these veterans hired, but it turns out that they don't like the job. <laughs> or they don't have purpose because no one thought about the culture transition that they're going through. Um, and so veterans started leaving their first jobs rather quickly. So, you know, upwards of 70% would leave in the first two years, 50% would leave in the first year. Um, you know, that was a study, I think, done in 2014. We've now seen that those types of statistics shift, it seems, um, such that veterans actually are staying longer because now we've realized that second order effect of, okay, hiring isn't just enough. It's actually about retention. Um, and so now we've been able to start focusing on how do we get people retained? And that's also led to some advancements in policy with the you know, DOD skills bridge program, program that allows veterans to go and get some industry experience as they're transitioning out while they're still on the payroll of the DOD. So for a company, win-win, free labor, and I get to try someone out, and hopefully there's a job at the end of the day for them too when they leave. Um, in addition to SkillBridge then, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Hiring Our Heroes program, which has fellowships for both veterans and military spouses, and also provides this avenue and channel by which government can get together with corporate entities, can get together with nonprofits, 
and a common space and actually talk to each other um, and, and make real relationships so that we can advance what is going on in the situation for veterans and family members. Um, and so that's been a game changer. And, and quite honestly, that effort through the U.S. Chamber was what kicked so much of this off in terms of being able to hit critical mass to make change happen. Um, and so it's as a result of those efforts that then over time, DOD was able to adopt policies. Congress was able to pass regulations and new provisions. And we've seen a lot of changes happening, you know, up into like the CARE Act of this year, um, changes to the GI Bill, veterans preference in government. All of those things have come about more recently as a result of this really like crisis of unemployment in the veterans transition space. So, you know, second order effect of focus of higher, higher, higher is, okay, retain, retain, retain. Guess what? We're not necessarily retaining people. And so that's now where I get to have fun as the organizational psychologist of like, wait, how do I get people to be good at their jobs? Because it's not then just about hiring. It's about actually optimizing someone in the job that they're in or finding them the job that they fit best in. And so that's really where the strategy piece comes in as well. And that's why I've been able to have so much fun at Boeing playing in that strategy world in addition to my other roles um, for the veterans population and really employing those best practices of mentorship and resource groups that provide community and onboarding, right? The criticality of onboarding someone, especially when they're not familiar with your culture, let alone your organization, because every organization is different. Um, making sure people just have kind of a basic understanding of things. And, you, you know, many veterans, if they joined right out of high school, for instance, may have no understanding of the healthcare system in the United States. They may also only have some understanding of financial planning because though the military has their version of a 401k, it's not, it, the control of your finances is very different in the military in terms of how you're paid, right? It's, it's fully transparent. Everyone at the same rank is getting effectively the same pay. Few exceptions to that in terms of how they um, can give bonuses or give you additional pay for specific types of skills that you have. But generally speaking, these things are known, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we don't have a pay up. transparency problem in the service. <laughs> yeah, that, that is generally not the issue. W women are making the same amount as men at the rank. <laughs> yeah, that's right. it's true. Um, I one day got paid to sit in a field and take a nap because we were doing a mass casualty um, scenario and I was killed in action like the first minute. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was it was a you know a day of honest pay. Um, but but yeah, so second order effect of higher 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 focus was on retain retain retain. Now what we're seeing the third order effect of all of this is focused on underemployment. So. You know, our obsession with hiring is really important. That really kicked us off and got us going in the right direction. Trial and error, figuring it out. Okay, now we realize it's really retention. We need to focus on keeping people in a job because someone, you know, just on the carousel of a job is also not a healthy lifestyle. And so, okay, focus on retaining. Well, it turns out, though, a veteran sometimes is not hired into the right job because they don't know how to market their skills. Or the civilian employer doesn't, necessarily hear it. Mm, and right. and so it's simply people talking past each other. And I myself, like the hilarious aspect of all of this, and maybe the irony is I went and got a job myself and realized I didn't accurately probably portray what I could do <laughs> um, as I was moving into a role. And I, I mean, fortunately I had people that were kind of helping me out, but like 
even when someone looks to a new company and they're used to the corporate sector, you never really know what the company wants because they're using their jargon, you're using your jargon, and you don't really know if you're talking past each other or not until, say, you join that company. It's exacerbated for veterans um, on both sides. And so it can be very difficult in that first or second experience for finding a job to right-size the skills and right-size the opportunity to show leadership, for instance, um, and also get people past rank. And that occurs both for the veteran and it occurs for the civilian employer. Um, people look at rank as like a valuation of that person's skill sets, unfortunately. And it's not accurate. It's just not. Yeah, we know some numbskull colonels that just get a job doing project management, even though they couldn't project manage their way out of a paper bag in the service. Like now, senior consulting project manager at some large, you know, military contract. I mean, we see that kind of stuff and it's, I don't know, it's interesting, right? <laughs> it is. Um, well, and equally, you'll get an E4 coming out with just a few years of experience, but it happens then, given their rank and experiences and the environment that we're in, that they were probably leading a team of 10 people already, right? Right. Um, and they go into that civilian employer and they're looking at like, oh, well, you were you were kind of junior enlisted. Mm, I don't know. Here's an entry level position. And then yeah. the person thinks like, wow, I feel unfulfilled and un, like unappreciated. And no wonder, right? Because they were likely a phenomenal leader that was already tested in a variety of settings that most senior executive leaders may not even be tested under. And they performed, and yet they're not getting rewarded for that. And so it really requires conversation. And that high-touch notion of employment is one that is, is difficult to actually follow through on, especially for larger companies, because it is resource-intensive. And so as a result, right now, the conversation is really focused on not on employment, but on underemployment. Um, this is a now very let's, big... Let's talk oh, underemployment yeah. for a minute. How do we measure? So I know how you measure total underemployment, right? That's, you know, total people in the labor force divided by the underemployed. But how do you know if somebody's underemployed? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, there, There is growing research on this. So... Unemployment's kind of a false statistic anyway, because it only accounts for people that are actively searching in the labor market right. up to a number of weeks even, right? So you could be actively searching for a year and you're no longer considered unemployed because it's been too long that you've been out of um, a job. So it's it's really a bit of a false statistic when you think about it. And it means it's underreported and just unemployment in general when we look across the U.S. labor market. Underemployment, you have to start taking into consideration um, degrees, experience, and skills, and then mapping that into the jobs that someone fulfills. And so, you know, there are some fantastically capable individuals that are um, working at McDonald's, for instance, like at the cashier register, right? But that's the job they took because they needed a job. But the reality is, is they are drastically underemployed, potentially, because if given the right situation, their capabilities would shine in a whole new light. And so when we look to veterans, we have to realize that so often they end up underemployed because their skills perhaps are not understood. So even if you go to the, um, you know, the military occupation code of infantry, which is one of the largest in the military, you know, most civilians are going to look at that and be like, oh, my gosh, this person shot somebody. I know I've been asked that at, at places. Which so is so special, right? Did you shoot somebody? And you're like, 
Um, how was your day yesterday? I mean, what do you <laughs> say it's to subtle. That? It's a very subtle way to get to know somebody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's when you have to play some mind tricks with people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's so many assumptions made then. But the reality was is someone in infantry had to do project-based work that was mission-focused with a clear deliverable in a team setting amongst unknowns. Like, how fantastic is that? Like, of course you want to hire that person. They're going to make your team better. Um, they're going to make your workforce better. But because it, they walk in with the first thing is like, I was infantry. Um, assumptions get made. And so that's how underemployment can happen in this community is assumptions get made. And you don't have the conversation with someone to sometimes pull out that additional information that makes them particularly relevant or have the skills that you actually are looking for, or perhaps just need to upskill slightly or credential. Um, we do see we have some credentialing problems in terms of the transition, such that people in service aren't required to have the same credentials, whether it be um, a licensure or some other exam that needs to be taken. They're not required to have it in the military to do the job that they have, because the military is really an apprenticeship program, like on steroids, if you think about it. I think of it as a rotation, a job rotation program and apprenticeship program on steroids, right? Like you're continuously rotating jobs to gain both narrow and broad experience. And you're also continuously being mentored um, in really in an apprenticeship model such that you increase that skill over, over time. Well, you drop someone then in the civilian sector and perhaps they don't have that licensing and credentialing, meaning they don't meet the minimum qualifications for a job. Or perhaps they don't have the degree but they have the on-the-job experience to do it instead of the degree. So the degree actually becomes something that doesn't matter for them. Um, and as a result, they don't even get to the interview. They don't even get to submit an application that's seen by someone because it gets kicked out of the system because it looks like they don't meet minimum qualifications. And so that's how people end up unemployed because they're kicked out of systems where they fit. And so they have to go and find something that they are able to do given what they have on paper which might not be an accurate display of their actual skill sets. Yeah, no, I think these are fantastic points. And you know, one thing in addition that I've experienced and that I think about sometimes is, you know, if we're thinking about you know, people in the military right now who are thinking about leaving uh, and making that transition, uh, one thing that I think they need to keep in mind, and perhaps this is something that, you know, it's easier to say as a veteran is, hey, don't come out with some sort of uh, entitled attitude that that you deserve some sort of job that you and you know don't come out as an 06 you know thinking that you deserve something at that commensurate level if you don't have the the skills to back it up um and and also i think there are some specific skills that are helpful in the civilian world that you will never really practice a whole lot in the military um you know by and large you know i'm thinking about you're not going to learn a whole lot necessarily about civilian finance and accounting. You're not going to learn a whole lot about entrepreneurship. Um, not going to learn a whole lot about marketing either, right? Those types of business functions aren't going to be part of your repertoire. So, you know, some some upskilling, like you've been developing yourself as a military person along the way. You got to keep that up and as you make the transition. Totally agree. Um and I mean, that's the case for all of us. Anymore, we look at the half-life of, of skills in general, and it's dramatically reduced. Um, it's, it's in fact, like the length, the half-life of skills is now half-lifed. Um, and we'll continue to do so exponentially over the coming years when we look at just technology in general. 
and so it it makes it all the more relevant that we're all going to be on this crazy upskilling train. It's not just going to be the military community. And um, I, I do want to note, too, on the military spouses front, kind of the group that sometimes gets forgotten, but they serve, too, and sometimes without without choice, right? Because right. they're just, they're the, la- the, the spouse that's following, the trailing spouse. Um, they have large-scale unemployment and even greater underemployment. In fact, there was a report put out by the White House, I believe it was a year and a half ago now, that reported over 50% of military spouses felt underemployed. Um, and the that they were giving up 200 plus thousand dollars over the course of a career simply because they were a trailing spouse and due to the decisions they had to make in their career. Yeah, and these military spouses sometimes get preyed upon by for-profit organizations, for-profit right. educational institutions and multi-level marketing schemes that don't yield, you know, good careers for these people. Hey, it just bothers me. There's nothing wrong with essential oils, Ben. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah these schemes are so successful. We do yeah. it in research all the time. It's called snowballing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're right. Well, and I heard that essential oils are great for COVID too, right? Oh, you know, oh we God. all have our place. That, that and- is a joke. That is a joke. <laughs> that is somehow a joke. A joke. That believes not, not that fact came to our podcast. I don't know how you found your way here, but that is not a cure for COVID. All right. Sorry. Just had to uh, that no, but I mean, it's good. And I just, I like to bring up the family because they are as essential to veterans employment, to be honest, as anything else, because we are employed as families, right? Income matters for a family, but also the military spouses really get the short end of the stick so often and also aren't given the thanks. Right. Um, so often you're standing there and every, like the, the veteran gets thanks and the military spouse is just perpetually standing behind them thinking like, oh, no worries. I'm just holding together the entire family and our finances and trying to find something in my job that gives me purpose to include just volunteering because I don't have another option given where we live. Well, if yeah. they just get on the misogyny train and be the like armchair <laughs> picture in the background god no, but this is, is a then, challenging right? cultural yeah, norm our our militaries grew up when life looked a certain way right and now now we're struggling to adapt in a way how can you have i mean we have same-sex couples now in the military um maybe you're you know you want to join the military but your wife has a phd and is doing amazing research like Kristen here is doing you know how do we make that because we want the we're like any other organization we want the best and brightest, and we don't want the sacrifice to be more than the job in as much as we can make it that. Now, flip side, orgs. I mean, what are you thinking? You should ask yourself, why don't veterans stay around here? You know, this idea of, man, in the army or in the military writ large, you know, oh, you go from this position, then you get developed into the next position, into the next. You know, the intake is is your body not too broken, right, to, to join? Okay, and then you maybe take a test. Here's the jobs available. Which one do you want? And then you just start. And so the military doesn't have the thing. It's like, you know, a little bit when we're setting up some of this new cyber initiative, we had some civilian to senior roles. But by and large, the military grows the talent it needs. And I get sick and tired of hearing organizations saying, well, you know, it's hard to find good help around here, you know? And it's like, well, grow it, you numbskull. <laughs> you know, get, get with it. The military does it. This is something you can organize. So 
let's pivot as we start to bring this plane in for a landing. So let's talk about the stuff that you've learned from your policy work, your stuff at Boeing, your stuff at PSYOP, being a veteran yourself, implications for people, leaders, and organizations. So first, for an individual that's out there, what are some of the top things they can take from, from what you've learned in life? Yeah, so I think just top one is finding purpose and passionately pursuing it, like unabashedly pursuing it, right? Because we have research showing that people like literally live longer in nursing homes if you give them a plant because it gives them something to be focused on in terms of a purpose each day. Like it's so fundamental to our existence of just feeling like we belong and we have a reason for being. So if you can find purpose, whether it's through your job, through volunteerism, through the communities that you sit in, like that is instrumental, Um, especially as someone transitions from the military community, because there's now going to be this void inside of them, potentially, right, Um, as they re-identify how they fit into the world. And and that makes transition difficult. So I, I think the second thing is transitions are hard. Like they suck. They are hard. And oh, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's the military transition or like other transitions, right? Like transition to parenthood, transition to marriage. Like these are good things that are super happy, but they're still really stressful because you're like psychologically making room in your head for a new role and a new conceptualization of how your life works. And that's hard. It's hard work and it requires like some introspection and just stepping back to grasp the moment of what's working and not and kind of revamping your plans. One of the things for individuals is if you're in the military, don't let the military become your only identity. Read books, develop an intellectual thought life, develop a community, you know, be involved. And maybe so if you if project management, this is a typical one. I see a lot of military people going, well, start plugging in, maybe get your PMP while you're still in the service plug into that broader community, maybe go to a couple of conferences, civilian-based conferences based on your stuff. So you can, that can make that, that transition a little bit easier. Now to your point of like transitioning to be a parent, you know, I want to sue whoever said, you know, kids change everything. That is the biggest understatement of the daggone millennia. (laughs) It's like, it should be like, welcome to baby nom. (laughs) (laughs) it's funny it's true i it took me a while to accept that they did change or i have one but he he did change everything but in like all good ways so um all good ways chris and liars aren't allowed on our podcast (laughs) honestly it is good ways i would probably work constantly because i get so into what i'm doing and he forces me to step back and just be like silly, right? Um, How fantastic is a child's view of the world? It's just (laughs) amazing. And so it's it's really cool to have someone in your life that demands that of you. (laughs) That's cool. Awesome. So let's move to some implications for leaders now. mm -hmm. So we have some like individuals. So for leaders, what are some things that they can take away from some of the stuff you've learned? Yeah, so I touched upon this a bit. You have to listen. I mean, this isn't just about for veterans. Like, you have to listen to your people, to what other stuff is going on in the context, and to your own thoughts, quite honestly. I mean, how often is the case that 
a leader is just in decision mode and they don't think through all the implications of the decision they make. It's just like, I feel like this is right. You have to listen. And with that, you have to take some time to step back. Like it, whether it's for your own just mental well-being or simply to allow you to make the best decision because you let it simmer for a moment. Um, you know, taking 10 minutes to go for a walk to let the ideas percolate in your head is actually phenomenally effective. And I, I doubt the decision couldn't wait 10 minutes, right? Generally speaking, people are not in an employment situation where it's life or death. So the one thing I've learned from the military is if you're not dying, then it can probably wait a few more minutes for me to actually make the best decision. Um, and as dramatic as that sounds, it's a true statement. Um, I, I worked in the office that was in charge of suicide, right? And so we had a pretty high threshold when things mattered. And and it's it's true. Like you, big decisions are big decisions. Um, and then lastly, just remembering that what we are perceiving is not necessarily someone else's reality is so critical here. Um, this goes to that whole concept of talking past each other. And the concept of an analogy I like is the tip of the iceberg right? So we only see the tip of icebergs. We don't see all the stuff that's underneath it. And I think a lot about the conversations that are going on in workplaces um, around race equity and diversity and inclusion right now, right? And how so many people weren't heard for so long um, and how people showed up to work masking like all of this part of themselves so that they could fit in. And we're finally having such a needed reckoning around like what it means to show up as yourself and be accepted. And so I think the same applies to veterans as it does with any person, right? Veterans are people too. Shocking statement, I know. <laughs> Turns out they were also born of a mother um, and they are people and they have the similar biology and physiology as everyone else. And so likewise, they want to show up as themselves um, and be accepted. And so I think we have to give people that grace to be that. That's great. So what would uh, you recommend to some other organizations um, or, or anything else uh, related to, to these topics? Yeah. So one is be strategic. It doesn't matter if you're an organization of five people or one of a million. Like think through what you are doing. And strategic does not mean you have to have a strategy. Strategic means you're actually thinking beyond the next step that you're taking right? You're looking into the future. Even better if you can have some vision and a strategy aligned with it, but not everything needs a strategy. Um, another one within that, right, is like really focus on what you're doing to allow people to know how to act. So onboarding, right? Um, veterans, it's especially important, but it's also important for expatriates. It's important for anyone coming to a new organization because every organization has different norms of behavior, like things, one company will think one behavior is very normal. Another will think like, what in the world is that person doing? Why are they putting their food in the refrigerator? That's weird. And the other company will think that's the most normal thing alive. And if you don't do it, you don't fit in. So it's just really important to be explicit in what those norms are for people when they come on board so they can start to acclimate and feel like they fit in just enough to start becoming themselves and by doing so almost start to not fit in as much, right? But that's the power of diversity and inclusion. Um, when it comes to this conversation of how do I get a veteran, people need to flip the script. It's not how do I get my veteran? It's 
how do I get the right people into my company with the right talent and skills that are going to propel me forward? And oh, by the way, I need to retain them. And it happens that military community members have the skills of the future and they have the mindset you want to get leverage. And not saying that's the case for everyone, but if that is the case, the focus needs to be on retention, not just how do I get this person in the door? Awesome. I think, yeah, I think there's one final point just to make on all of this, but like on shifting the narrative, right? There's There's been so much of a narrative in particular the last two decades around like veterans are broken. You know, it's 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 the sad commercials of the veteran with a disability and their parents talking about how they've overcome so much. And those are fantastic and needed acknowledgement of the placement of the world of disability in the veteran community and more broadly, because not everyone's disability is physical, right? There's can be mental and we all have these things that need accommodations, but veterans aren't broken. And even the ones that have gone through particular adversity, whether that's physical or psychological, because of that adversity and because they made it through it, that means they're thriving in other ways that no one else can even imagine. And so I think we really need to focus on the veteran as the uber resilient individual, the person with uber grit instead of broken because it's it's what they did with that experience that matters. It's not the fact that it happened. Awesome. Well, this has just been a fantastic conversation, Kristen, and uh, you know, really appreciate all the all the insights that you shared. Uh, I really want to point our listeners though to our show notes because uh, Kristen had a bunch of great links uh, that that she provided for us. So check those out for more information about various things related to, to today's conversation. Uh, anything else, Kristen, that you want to share with the world via the Indigo podcast? No, I, I just, um, well, one, thank you for having me. And two, you know, I, if everyone would just lean in to understanding other people, right? Have the conversation, whether it's a veteran or somebody else, have a conversation and be authentic. I think. I think we can make this world a better place each and every day and find some ways to have some impact that aren't just in word, but also in deed. Wonderful. Well, our guest today has been Kristen Sabo. Thank you so much for being a part of the Indigo Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.